Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12. So I, reflect, I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. <laughs> For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a hopeful heart. A joyful heart, too. Uh, <laughs> so God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you're going... There is neither work, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong. Nor does the food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happens to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish is caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that falls unexpectedly upon them. Good morning. My name is Mike. I haven't done a sermon in quite a while. Do you notice anything different about me? Nope. Look about the same. I weigh the same. My hair is maybe a little thinner. But today, I am wearing dancing shoes. And... Nobody is more surprised than me that I own dancing shoes, believe me. And not only did I buy dancing shoes, I had to go to a store on Monona Drive called Rosy Cheeks to buy them. I had to go there twice. I was the only guy in the store, but my wife was with me, so that helped a little bit. But I have dancing shoes because a little bit before COVID hit, my wife and I started taking dancing lessons at the Arthur Murray Studio on Verona Road, and we've been enjoying the lessons. Our instructor, John, is a little older than us, and he has a story for everything, and we have a story for everything, so about 25% of our dance lessons are us just sharing stories back and forth while good music plays in the background, so it's very enjoyable, and I'm not a very good dancer. I can do okay, but... It's not my giftedness. And I told John, I said, my brain works wonderfully in many different ways. Dancing is not one of them. In fact, when I uh, sing during worship at Lakeview, I have to decide, am I going to clap or am I going to sing? Because I can't do both, at least, least not very well. So I have to decide. Yet, 
many times when I'm worshiping here and I can just sense the, the presence of the Spirit and I'm getting caught up in the worship, I think to myself, if I was in heaven right now, I would be dancing because that's, that's what my spirit wants to do. It wants to dance before the Lord. And my wife used to belong to a church in Florida where during worship, they would dance in the aisles. And she said it was beautiful and natural and lovely, and she really enjoyed it. I don't know that will ever happen here at Lakeview. It's not the culture, right? But wouldn't it be great if the spirit moved and people felt comfortable dancing before the Lord? I think that would be great. You never know. So in that context of dancing and learning about dancing, uh, John, our instructor, told us one day, he said, when you see two people dancing, it should look like they're having a conversation with each other. Now, this isn't dancing with the stars or competitive dancing where everything's choreographed and everybody practices it and they've got all the timing down and everybody knows what's going to happen. That's not a conversation. That's a script. But if people are out social dancing, it should look like a conversation. The man is leading. The woman's following. Uh, they don't really know what's coming up next. Whatever the woman does, it might not be what the guy intended, but when she's done doing it, he's right there to make it look like that was the plan all along. They're dancing. It should be enjoyable to watch. So I put that through my uh, follower of Christ filter, and I think about my walk with God as a conversation and as a dance, as, as God leads, and I try to follow, not always sure if this is him speaking or if this is what he wants me to do, but I do my best knowing he's going to stick with me and, and when I come out at the other end of the move, whatever that might be, he's going to be there. And it's in this context of me thinking about that that I get a, a text from Andy, maybe in June, says, can you preach August 15th? So I said, give me a day to pray about it because that's what Christians do, right? When you don't want to answer right away, you say, let me pray about it. And I said, what's the, what's the subject? And he said, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, live like you were dying. And I thought, oh, I read the text. I thought, that's kind of a depressing text. It's kind of the opposite of dancing into eternity with Jesus. But I told him, I'll, I'll do the sermon. It'll give me something to think about. So then I, I started thinking about Ecclesiastes and kind of the theme of Ecclesiastes is that life is meaningless. And there's a few bright spots in it where Solomon tells us, uh, enjoy your toil, eat and drink, be merry, uh, enjoy your wife. But a lot of it's kind of depressing. And I think maybe Solomon got to the end of his life and a lot of things that he thought were going to bring meaning, he figured out they weren't. So the thousand women, the horses, uh, the palaces didn't really seem to count for anything. And so we don't want to get to the end of our lives and look back and say everything looks kind of meaningless. So I, I read some of Ecclesiastes. I thought about it. Whenever I come to Ecclesiastes, the phrase that comes to mind for me is vanity of vanities. That's the King James translation that comes right away. I want to show us the first two verses of Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So I always read that and I think, couldn't they have done a better job of translating that? Because I read that and it, it, I just don't know what to do with it. So then I looked up other translations and I have those for us here. 
I just read the King James. The NIV says meaningless, meaningless. The NASB stuck with vanity of vanities, but when they did their 2020 update, they changed it to futility of futilities. The New Living says everything is meaningless, and the paraphrase the message says smoke, nothing but smoke, which is interesting. So I think about this word, vanity. That's a noun. Vain is the adjective. So if somebody is vain, they're what? They're proud. They're conceited. If an action is in vain or vain, it's empty. It's futile. So if I rush somebody to the hospital because they're sick and they die, me rushing them to the hospital was in vain. It didn't work. It ended up being futile. We're not supposed to take God's name in vain, use it in an empty or hollow way. So I think about that, this vanity of vanities not being empty. And he's saying life is empty. Then I, I looked at the Hebrew word behind this, haved, that means literally vapor or breath, something that's gone about as soon as you can see it. But it, that's used figuratively to mean an emptiness. I have Proverbs 21.6 here. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. So that fleeting vapor is the same word translated vanity. It's haved. And here, in this context, they say it's a fleeting vapor. So you can have all the money in the world, and as soon as you die, what? It's gone. It's like it was never there. It was a fleeting vapor. In the end, it didn't do you any good. Now, I want to look at a few verses in Ecclesiastes that Lindsay just read that talk about life being meaningless. We're going to start out with verse 2. It says, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. So in this context, the, the common destiny is the grave. We're all going to die. And in verse 3, he says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. That's kind of depressing. He says, people are evil, and then they die. That's what he's seen. We jump ahead to verse 9. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. So we look at these phrases like a common destiny. We're all headed to the grave, good and evil alike. The same destiny is going to overtake us no matter what we do. He talks about this meaningless life, your meaningless days. That also has a little connotation of your days that are like a vapor here and then gone. But that is Solomon's attitude later in life. He says, so much of this that I thought was going to be important turned out to be meaningless. So much of what I put my effort into turned out to not matter, right? I'm going to have to hand this off to somebody else. Who knows what they're going to do with it? So he feels like everything is meaningless, yet we know what? Life isn't meaningless. Everything we do matters and is important to God. In fact, the last verse in Ecclesiastes says this, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So God's going to bring it all into judgment, all into the light. 
And if that's the case, then everything matters. And, and Jesus affirmed this in Matthew 12. He said, But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. So I think about that. How many words do we speak in a day? I don't know. I didn't look it up. Guys speak like 10 or 15,000, right? And women are like 15 or 20,000 from memory. I have to give an account for those words. And I think not just about the empty ones, but what about uh, the negative ones or the slandering ones? Those aren't good. I have to give an account for those. Then I think if I have to give an account for every word, I probably have to give an account for every dollar, right? Uh, if your average household income is 70000 that's $200 a day. So $200 a day, I'm going to have to give an account for. I waste a lot of money if you really look at eternity and what's important, but I'm going to have to give an account for that. Now, if I, if I give God what's his, at least I don't have to give an accounting for what I did with his money. At least I'm just giving an accounting for what I have to do with what I had to do with my own, so that's good. But it's almost overwhelming when you think about it. If every word matters, every dollar matters, it's more than we can handle, right? It's like too much responsibility. So on the one extreme, we have everything is meaningless. On the other extreme, we have every word, every dollar matters. What you do with everything matters. And we have to kind of reconcile those things together as we live the Christian life. We want our life to have meaning. We don't want to get to the end of it like Solomon did and look back and say life doesn't have meaning. And I have this little quote for us. If life doesn't have meaning for you, you're doing it wrong. If you're going through life and you're struggling and you feel like my life doesn't have any meaning, what I do doesn't matter, then you're doing it wrong. Where does our meaning come from? God, easy answer when you're in church, right? Meaning comes from God. It's our relationship with him. We're made in God's image. We're meant to follow him, be part of his family. That's where our meaning comes from. Everything we do is important to our heavenly father. So that's where our meaning comes from. That's what gives life meaning. I want to continue on. Uh, we're going to jump ahead to verse 11 in Ecclesiastes. It says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Now, I don't know if Solomon is just observing this, that life seems pretty random, or is he complaining that the strong don't always win? And I think, well, if the best team always won the game, why play, right? Or if you're learned, if you were born at a time and a place where you could get educated, you know, should you get all the favor or should the favor be spread around a little bit? Seems like it should be spread around a little bit, doesn't it? I don't know. But he ends it with time and chance happen to them all. I think that's funny because Solomon was born son of the king of Israel. As time and chance happened, he made out pretty good, didn't he? He was in a pretty good time, in a pretty good place, born in a pretty good position. He got the coat of many colors, right? He was the favored son. No, no, he didn't get the coat of many colors. Who got the coat of many colors? 
Joseph. How do we know that? The Bible. And they did a musical about it. So that's how we know Joseph got the coat of many colors. So when I think about the Old Testament, I have a few dates I keep in my mind that I'll just share with you. So about 2100 B.C., Abraham was called. So this is right after the flood, obviously. God chooses Abraham in his sovereignty. He says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. We're going to head, head you that way. He says, okay. Don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to follow you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. He sold into slavery about 1900 B.C. He ends up in Egypt, second in command. Uh, Jacob's family moves down there. Uh, they're in slavery for 400 years. God sends Moses. He delivers them. About 1450, they come out. Joshua leads them eventually into the promised land. They're ruled by uh, prophets and judges for a few hundred years. Then about 1050 B.C., Saul is their first king. He reigns for 40 years. Then David becomes king about 1010 B.C. So when you hear of David, think uh, 1000 B.C. He reigns for 40 years. Then Saul becomes king about 970. So that's where we are here. And Saul reigns for 40 years also. So the first three kings of Israel all reigned for 40 years. So keep those dates in mind. Now, back to Ecclesiastes. Everything has meaning. Everything is meaningless, right? That doesn't really help. The truth is, is somewhere in the middle. I was reminded, thinking about this, of Pastor Andy's sermon from two weeks ago. So he spoke on Ecclesiastes chapter 7 on wisdom. And he said wisdom is important. And wisdom uh, protects your life and extends it. But Ecclesiastes 7 also tells us don't be overly wise. Don't be too smart. So, so where is it? Well, Andy said this, and this is a quote from his sermon. Andy said, wisdom is a good thing except when it's a bad thing. Wisdom does have great value except when it's worthless. It's hard to nail down everything all the time. You have to learn things by experience. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. So wisdom is a good thing. We know that. But it's bad if you trust your own wisdom over trusting God. And wisdom does have great value except when it doesn't. Does wisdom keep you from getting sick? Well, you could argue maybe a little bit if I do some things that are smart. But to a large extent, no, it doesn't. Time and chance happens to us all. So wisdom has great value except when it doesn't. That's kind of how the Bible is. You can look at this verse and you can look at that verse. And they might appear to be in conflict, but they're not. They're all true for all time, right? When I think of that concept, there's a couple passages that always come to my mind. The first one is Jesus from Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think, I think everyone likes that passage, right? Isn't that encouraging? If we're uh, troubled with life, buried under the weight of our own sin, we can come to Jesus and take his yoke. It's light, it's easy, we can have peace with God. But at the same time, Jesus tells us this. Then he said to them all, from Luke chapter 9, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Well, that kind of sounds like the opposite. So instead of, hey, my yoke is easy, it's like, hey, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily and die to self. If you die to self, you're going to save your life. You're really going to have life, which is hard to understand. But both verses are true, right? We have to learn how they apply to us and when they apply to us as the Holy Spirit teaches us. That's kind of the way it is. My dad used to tell me when I was growing up, he says, the Bible is written for everybody. So it's written for the drunk on the Bible, on the Bible stool, the drunk on the bar stool who never thinks he'll be good enough. He could never measure up to what God wants. And the Bible is written for the highly educated religious professional who thinks God's proud of him and thinks he earns and deserves a spot in heaven. It's written for both, right? So what's the message of the Bible for the drunk on the bar stool? The message is, uh, you don't have to be acceptable to me because Jesus is. If you place your faith in Jesus, his blood covers your sin. When I look at you, I see the righteousness of Christ. You can be part of my family simply through faith. Right? And the message, the message for the uh, self-righteous professional is what? Nobody's good enough. You can't earn your way. God opposes the proud and the stiff-necked. You have to come to faith. So the message is the same. Jesus is the only way, just coming at it from different angles. So as we think about the Bible and how to do life with God, we have to realize that, that there aren't always hard, fast rules that happen all the time, even though there are principles that we can apply. Now, I talked earlier about doing dancing lessons. And a month ago, we were doing this little move where we step forward and go like this, and then we're going to do a little break. So I let go of my wife's hand and go like this, and she mirrors me, and we go like this. And then we're supposed to come back, and we do the same thing, and we look this way, and then or we look at each other's eyes in the middle, and we go like this. Of course, when I go to do that move, as soon as, soon as I let go of her hand, I just drop my arm, right? Because that's just, I don't know, that's just what I do, and then go like this. And when I let go here, I drop this hand. And then the, the instructor stops me and says, no, Mike. He said, dancing needs to involve as little effort as possible. So if you're going to need your arm here, you don't lower it and bring it up later. You just keep it there. So as you, as you do these breaks, you keep your arms out, which feels a little bit weird because you're sticking your arm out, right? But he says, oh, that's less work, and that's how you do it. So I'm thinking, okay, I process that. But I think, I know there's times he tells me to do stuff that is a lot more work than not doing anything. So it's like, when... When do I apply the rule and when do I not? I just need to learn that as I, as I dance and watch other good dancers, I'll learn what makes sense and what's intuitive. And, and just processing it, I'm thinking about, well, it's probably not actually less work, but maybe it looks like less work. So instead of my arms flailing around and they're just kind of there, it maybe looks more graceful, and it looks like there's less work. So I have to learn that by experience as I dance. Now, I'm in my family business of uh, being a grading contractor, moving dirt, so I have to have a grading story. 
When I started running Scraper, it was in the 80s. The scraper on the left is uh, what we run now, but the scraper on the right, that's my dad in the early 70s. That might have been 50 years ago. My dad is 80 now, so he, maybe, he was probably in his early 30s there. That's the model scraper I learned on. One of the first jobs I was on was in Edgerton. We were regrading a couple of softball fields and adding a road through it. So I was running the scraper. Taking a, uh, getting a load of dirt off a pile. Then I came down onto this driveway we had built. Didn't have any gravel on it yet. It was just dirt. And I turned, loaded, and then drove down the road and dumped my dirt. Came back, got another load, did that again. Did that three or four times. And where I was turning in the road, loaded, it just turned into mush. It was just a big soft spot developed. And my dad stopped me and said, hey, he said, when we got a roadbed done like that, you can't drive on it. You've got to stay off it with that heavy scraper, drive down the ditch where it doesn't matter. So I thought, okay. We go to our very next job. It's kind of the same type of job. It's a driveway. So we've got the upper part of the driveway done, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm on the ball. I have some experience. I'm going to stay off the roadbed. I'm going to drive down the ditch. So I do that several times, and my dad stops me. And he says, hey, why are you driving down the ditch? you got all this topsoil, like concrete. I can't even grade it. And I said, well, on the last job, you told me to not drive down the road. And I still remember to this day, he said, he said well, that was the last job. This is this job. And I, I thought, how am I going to learn when I'm supposed to drive here and when I'm supposed to drive here? There's no rule, right? It changes. It's by experience. And you get enough experience, make enough mistakes, eventually you learn, hey, this is where I should be driving, given the context, given this situation. This is how it needs to be done. But you need to learn that by experience. Nobody can sit you down and just tell you everything at once. You need to learn it a little bit by little bit, kind of like dancing. This brings me to the idea of tacit knowledge. If something's tacit, it's unspoken, like tacit approval. You didn't really get approval, but they didn't say you couldn't, so you assume it's approved. That's this idea of something being unspoken or tacit. Tacit knowledge is knowledge that's difficult to write down, visualize, or transfer from one person to another. Or intuitive knowledge rooted in context, experience, practice, and values. That would be like Moving dirt. It's rooted in context and experience. Or this quote from Michael, he, this is 1958, he wrote about tacit knowledge. He said this, we can know more than we can tell. So my dad just can't sit down and explain everything to me. Some I just have to learn through time and experience. Now, there's no secret knowledge in Christianity, right? The Bible has everything we need to know. And Christian teachers are telling us everything they know, right? There's, there's nothing held back. There's nothing secret. Yet, there are things we need to learn for ourselves. We need to experience things to really understand it. It's just the way, it's just kind of the way the Bible works. It's kind of the way the gospel works. So, if I tell you about the gospel... I lay it out for you. I draw pictures. I draw diagrams. Does that mean you understand it? 
Maybe, right? At one time in my life, I could have explained the gospel to somebody else, but I really didn't quite get it. I kind of did. I could have explained it. I could have stood up here and preached, but I hadn't really experienced it. I, a few months ago, I was meeting with a guy once in a while, and he had said, it hasn't clicked. And I was just going over the gospel over and over again, every way I knew how. I was drawing pictures, Bible verses like crazy, analogies, stories. Every angle I could approach it from, I was. And this is over several weeks. Then at about six weeks into it, he, he asked me a question which made it very clear he hadn't learned anything. He hadn't picked up on anything. Because he asked me a, a question about somebody who he knew didn't have any faith. And he said, well, what about them? They're a nice guy. And I just spent six weeks telling him, it's not about being nice, it's about being forgiven. So I can explain it to you. Does that mean you really understand it? You have to understand it and experience it for yourself. Nobody can teach you the gospel. You have to experience it for yourself in the end. You can lay out the rules. You can say what this is involved. It's kind of like grace. I can tell you about grace. I can give you the definition but if you sing Amazing Grace and you haven't experienced the forgiveness of God and his grace, do you really understand it? I don't think so. Not like you can by experiencing it. And that's something you have to experience yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. I have this next screen. It says, what you really need to learn, nobody can teach you. You need to learn it by experience with Jesus. Now, we can teach you the gospel, right? Faith comes by hearing. You have to hear the gospel to, in order to accept it, but you have to step out in faith and accept it to really understand it. That's my point there. Andy was with a group of Madison pastors a while ago, and he asked the pastor of a large church who had been at it a long time, he said, how do you make disciples? And the pastor said, I don't know. Now, that's kind of ironic because the entire purpose of a church is to make disciples, right? That's why we're here. We want to be disciples of Christ. But he said, I don't know. He was being honest. He can, you can give somebody the information, but that doesn't make them a disciple. And then he said, but suffering really helps. Why does suffering help make disciples? It's the experience. It's the walking through something with God and getting to the other side of it, and God's still there with you. And you can look back and say, God was with me through all of that. It develops, what, perseverance, right? It strengthens our faith. That's how disciples are made. So my, my point in all of this, looking at Ecclesiastes and Solomon, the king of Israel, at the end of his life, saying everything is meaningless, is that's not where I want to end up with my life, and that's not where I want you to end up with your life. I don't want you to look back and say, I invested in the wrong things, life is meaningless. I want you to be able to look back, and I want to be able to look back and say, hey, my life was filled with meaning. Do I have regrets? Yes. Would I do things differently if I had to do it over again? Yes. But my life is filled with meaning because of my relationship with Christ. My final slide is this. You can't learn how to dance without dancing. So you go to dance lessons. We're not in there two minutes. He tells us how to hold each other, arm like this, 
her arm here, this is how you hold each other. Then he says, this is your box step. Slow, quick, quick, slow, quick, quick. There I danced on stage at Lakeview. And two minutes in, we're dancing. So he plays some music and we're dancing. Then we put a little turn into it, right? And we don't know much, but we're dancing at least. The Christian walk, the Christian faith is just like that. It's by doing life with Jesus that you learn. Like Lindsay said, I learned this summer how I communicate with God. God communicates with us individually and uniquely. God doesn't communicate with my wife the exact same way he communicates with me. Very similar, but not exactly the same. You can only learn that for yourself. Now, you can, you can listen to sermons about hearing from God and know that it's important to be in the Word and spend time praying and spend time listening, but you actually have to do it and try it and step out in faith to get to where you need to be. Now, about 10 seconds before I left this morning to come here, the country song, I Hope You Dance, came to my mind. And I can't remember who sings it. It's a female star, Leanne Womack, sings it. And she's singing, she's singing to her daughter, right? Saying, as your life is coming, I hope you dance. I hope you don't stand there and watch everybody else dance. I hope you dance. So you get to the end of your life and you can say, I danced, right? So that's my hope for my kids. And I was in my car and I started crying because I'm so sensitive. And <laughs> I, I really did start crying, not, not like a baby, but just tears came to my eyes. And that's my wish for my kids is that they can dance with Jesus and get to the end of their life and say, everything had meaning. It was all wonderful. So that's my prayer for me and for you and for Lakeview, that God would move here and we would experience him, that we would trust him and be able to look back on our lives and say, thank you, Lord, for all the meaning, for all the meaning. I'm going to end us in prayer. This is a little more emotional than first service was. I'm going to end us in prayer, and then we're done. Now we can uh, enjoy our beautiful August afternoon. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise your name that you want to lead us each individually, that you want to speak to us and give everything in our life meaning as we follow you. We thank you for that. You are a wonderful, amazing, mighty God. Help us to hear your voice, to follow you, and give us the courage to follow you. Amen.